Welcome to MoFo Perspectives, a podcast by Morrison and Forrester, where we share the perspectives of our clients, colleagues, subject matter experts, and lawyers. Hello, and welcome to part four of Morrison and Forrester's COVID-19 podcast series. I'm Mike Ward, a partner at Morrison Forster and head of the firm's patent group and our life sciences practice. I'm joined today by three of my colleagues, Janet Zhao, a patent partner and head of our China life sciences group, Bethany Hills, the head of our FDA group, and Rufus Pichler, a partner in our technology transactions group. Researchers around the world are working at record speed to find the best ways to treat and prevent COVID-19. Today, we will be focusing on this path to a therapy. Janet, great to have you on the podcast today. Since this is your first time with us, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Hello, everyone. My name is Janet Xiao. I'm a patent attorney at the Paula Auto Office of Morrison Forster. I help life sciences companies develop patent strategies and obtain patents to protect their products. I also represent investors in conducting IP due diligence on life sciences companies. It's my pleasure to join the podcast. So last time we talked about vaccines on our last episode. What are the main differences between vaccines and therapeutics? So vaccines and therapeutics serve different purposes. Vaccines are provided to the general population to train our immune systems to fight against the viral infections. Therapeutics are provided to individuals who have already been infected with the virus to ameliorate the consequences of the viral infection. Some therapeutic antibodies are also being developed to prevent COVID-19, but the mechanism of action is very different from that of vaccine. So we are hoping that Vaccine will be available soon that will really help with the pandemics. But even after effective vaccines are widely available to protect the general public, therapeutics are always needed to save lives because not everybody can be immune from virus attack. So Janet, how does COVID-19 infect our bodies? COVID-19 is caused by the coronavirus called SARS-CoV-2. The surface of the virus is densely decorated with a protein called spike, or sometimes referred to as S protein. The spike protein binds to a receptor on the human cell surface called ACE2 with very high affinity, which is why the virus is so extremely infectious. ACE2 is not only found in the lung, but also in other organs such as heart, liver, kidney, intestine, and the central nervous system, all of which can be attacked by the virus. The binding of the spike protein to the ACE2 receptor mediates the entry of the virus into the human cell. Once inside the human cell, the virus can self-replicate and trigger a series of inflammatory reactions leading to all kinds of symptoms. But the virus does more than just that. It's believed that the binding of the S protein to the ACE2 receptor also downregulates ACE2. It turns out that ACE2 is an important regulator of a signaling pathway involved in many diseases, such as hypertension, cardiovascular diseases, and respiratory distress syndrome. 
under normal circumstances is to keep this signaling pathway under control. When a person is infected with the coronavirus, ACE2 is downregulated and the signaling pathway becomes overactivated. This overactivation triggers the release of a lot of harmful cytokines and results in various different diseases. In severe cases, this can also lead to multiple organ failure. Janet, what types of COVID-19 treatments are currently being considered? The therapeutic options for COVID-19 are constantly evolving. Initial efforts were focusing on utilizing existing drugs to meet the urgent needs for treating this new and rare disease. Uh, These include drugs that inhibit replication of viruses and drugs that fight against the immune responses triggered by the viral infection. Anticoagulants are also used to address the issue with blood clotting caused by the virus. Another option is convalescent plasma therapy, where plasma from patients who have recovered from COVID-19 is used to treat other patients. As we know more about the mechanism of action for COVID-19, new therapeutics specifically targeting COVID-19 are now being developed. And these include drugs that block the initial binding of the spike protein to the ACE2 receptor and drugs that inhibit downstream events triggered by the binding. Other remaining hypotheses are being developed and tested, but it's certainly a very exciting time for us patent attorneys working alongside with clients who discover new therapeutics for COVID-19. So Janet, we're recording this at the end of October 2020. Where are we now with regard to approved or authorized therapeutics? So in the United States, the only drug that's approved by the US FDA for treating COVID-19 is the antiviral drug remdesivir developed by Gilead. The brand name is called Veclury. Remdesivir was initially authorized for emergency use in May. And about a week ago, on October 22nd, this drug was officially approved by the FDA for treating COVID-19 in certain patients. Uh, This was the very first treatment for COVID-19 to receive FDA approval. Another therapy that was authorized for emergency use in the U.S. is the covalescent plasma therapy. And there are some other antibody drugs that have been approved in Russia and India for treating COVID-19. For targeted drug therapy, Regeneron and Eli Lilly are the forerunners. They have both made antibodies against the spike protein, which blocks the binding of the virus to the ACE2 receptor. And antibodies are being tested for both preventing COVID-19 and for treating COVID-19. As you might know, President Trump was treated with Regeneron's antibody cocktail after he was tested positive for the coronavirus. And interestingly, just as yesterday, both Regeneron and Eli Lilly have announced the promising clinical trial results with their antibodies for treating a mild to moderate COVID-19. Both companies have applied for emergency use authorizations. Another promising approach taken by many other companies is to make a soluble version of the ACE2 receptor 
which serves as a sink that sucks away all the viruses and prevent them from binding to the ACE2 receptor on the cell surface. Many companies are focusing on this. Based on the FDA website, there are currently more than 300 clinical trials under review relating to COVID-19 treatment and more than 600 drug development programs at planning stage. So we should expect many more drugs being approved in the near future. Okay, Janet, thanks very much. Now we'll turn to Bethany Hills to talk us through some of the regulatory frameworks that are available for the development and approval of a COVID-19 therapy. Bethany, can you give us a brief overview of the FDA's overall drug approval process? Sure. Thanks, Mike. And thanks, Janet, for such a great scientific background. That was really helpful. Usually, a drug development process takes at least 10 years, sometimes more, sometimes a little less. In general, we have a typical chart that many of us look at. Of course, investors and drug developers are always trying to shorten the amount of time from discovery of a product into actual approval. But there's typically two to five years that's basic science and research. There's often a handful of years, sometimes it's one to two, that are preclinical testing, including in some cases animal testing. And often clinical trials can run from phase one all the way through the final pivotal studies up to nine or 10 years just in of itself for clinical trials. Of course, large phase three multicenter trials can take a very long time to recruit. And often we have to remember that FDA can take anywhere from at the shortest period, six months for their own administrative review and approval up to often two years, sometimes even longer to actually approve the products. And so what we're experiencing now during the COVID-19 pandemic is a rush to try and move those timelines definitely shorter than 10 years. That is not the goal. We are shooting for something much less, while at the same time trying to balance the need for safety and efficacy and understanding how the products actually work. So Bethany, what is involved in the clinical trials phase of the drug development? Sure. I'll just briefly describe the typical three phases. And remember, the statutory requirement for a true new drug approval or perhaps a biologic license authorization, so these are two processes depending on the type of product the FDA would use in the normal course, do require that there be at least two well-controlled studies. Now, in the recent years, FDA has been more likely to approve products, a drug or a biologic, with only one large multicenter well-controlled study. But there's a lot that you have to get to even before you get to that single phase three. So first we start with the phase one, which is testing in healthy subjects. These are usually smaller number of people. They are healthy volunteers. What we're usually looking for in these clinical studies is drug safety, trying to figure out the dosage, looking at the drug properties on how it's absorbed and metabolized, how it gets excreted. A good number of drugs move beyond that phase. I think the most often cited number is that approximately 70% of drugs move beyond phase one. Then you have phase two. This is actual testing in individuals with the disease. These are a larger population of people. So these typically are studies that are a few hundred people. They could even be larger. And you're looking specifically in that 
phase to identify if there's efficacy and to determine if there are any side effects. And at this point, we usually only see about 33% of drugs move beyond this phase. So you can see this is a funnel. As you move through the phases, the drugs do tend to not move past one phase to another. By the time you get to phase three, these are the larger scale testing. This is always in people with the disease. These are efficacy studies, and they are usually with longer follow-up period to monitor not only adverse reactions that could happen immediately, but also long-term issues. In particular with oncology studies, we know these can go on for a very long time with follow-up. There's also another phase called a phase four. These typically are referred to as post-market surveillance studies. And as I mentioned a moment ago, more and more FDA is willing to approve a product based on a single phase three. So that's a well-controlled study, but it has to be very well designed. It has to meet all of the requirements and it has to have no mistakes, no issues. It has to be a, a very large study. And so many drug companies in development are actually trying to use a single phase three study for approvals. Now, what we have currently in the situation of our pandemic is the emergency use authorization, which I know I've talked about on some of our earlier podcasts, but these are specific processes that FDA is allowed to use when there is an emergency that's been declared, and this is for either diagnosing or treating the disease. FDA reviews the criteria of whether or not the disease is serious or life-threatening, so we've checked the box there. Then they look at the application for evidence of effectiveness. So you can't just have an idea that there's effectiveness. We have to have got some level of effectiveness study. FDA then is going to outweigh the potential risks against the benefits and figure out how those match up against each other. Look at whether or not there are other alternatives. And then we'll be issuing EUAs. And as mentioned earlier, there are very limited number of EUAs available, emergency use authorized products for COVID-19. In fact, we had a very interesting situation. It's a good reminder for everybody who's looking at the emergency use authorization process. You may remember, I hope we haven't forgotten about hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine did receive FDA EUA authorization back in March. And as more and more data was collected in humans, it actually became apparent that the efficacy was pretty limited. And in fact, some of the side effects, in particular cardiac side effects, were quite harsh. And when FDA continued to look at that data and review it, they made a determination that they were going to revoke the emergency use authorization. And so they did. And while the drug continues to still be under clinical trials, as we've talked about, it is not available under an emergency use authorization at this point in time. To Bethany, how does the FDA regulate off-label or unapproved drugs? It's a good question. And as Janet mentioned earlier, there are a lot of different mechanisms of action that could be useful in treating COVID-19. So physicians can prescribe FDA-approved drugs for unapproved, or we call them off-label health conditions, if it is in their medical judgment appropriate to use the product for that reason. This involves making sure that the patient has given their informed consent, and it essentially puts the onus on the prescribing physician or the treating physician to take responsibility for using this product off-label with a patient. Companies cannot market an unapproved drug 
We come up with this issue a lot in issues around the way that language is for dietary supplement and whether or not there are products that are making drug claims. We've also seen off-label use being identified for products that are to treat COVID-19, but they're being promoted by the companies for that particular COVID-19 indication, and that is what is not permitted here. FDA only approves therapeutics for specific diseases or conditions, and this is to ensure that there's specific data and sufficient analysis of benefits versus risk. And as I mentioned before, since the onus falls on the prescribing physician to make a decision to use something off-label, in fact, the American Medical Association and the FDA both support this practice. It's considered a scope of practice within the practice of medicine that is able to be done. Usually, prescribing physicians are not held liable for the practice of using off-label drugs as long as they've gotten good medical basis to do it, and also they've got an informed consent from the patient. However, there's also a little twist here in the COVID-19 situation because there is statutory protection for liability called the PrEP Act. Maybe we can talk about that in a different podcast later on. PrEP Act protection for the use or distribution or treatment with a product is out there to help protect against liability. So if there is actually a harm or some kind of economic damage that happens as a result of that use of the product. However, PREP Act liability is not going to apply if you don't have some kind of formal emergency use authorization. So actually using something off-label in this context could lead to a bigger amount of liability. And as mentioned earlier, I know Janet went through this, There are a number of products that are out there in the market that are being used off-label for now. Many of them are being studied for COVID-19, but the prescribing physicians do continue to use them. There's antiretrovirals that were used for HIV infections that are being considered, a number of antivirals. There's corticosteroids that reduce inflammation. And there are also some antibiotics, which are not necessarily protective against or treating the virus, but they are being used off-label to treat bacterial complications that come and are associated with COVID-19. Okay, Bethany, thanks so very much. We're now going to turn to Rufus Pischler. Rufus, the regulatory framework is in place to accelerate the path to a therapy. Is there a partnership framework also available to organizations? Yeah, thanks, Mike. Yeah, there are a number of projects dedicated to accelerating COVID-19 therapeutic development and removing some of the barriers to more efficient collaboration in this space. So one example is ACTIVE, which stands for Accelerating COVID-19 Therapeutic Interventions and Vaccines. So this is an NIH-led public-private partnership that includes government agencies, over 20 private sector biopharma companies and also nonprofits. Active is mainly focused on sharing preclinical data between these various development efforts, enhancing access to candidate screening results, coordinating and prioritizing vaccine and therapeutic candidates, and also streamlining clinical trials. So just kind of coordinating all these various efforts that are going on to reduce redundancy. Another effort is the COVID-19 Therapeutics Accelerator. That's an initiative started by the Gates Foundation, Wellcome, and MasterCard. The COVID-19 Therapeutics Accelerator provides funding to development efforts, facilitates knowledge sharing, resource pooling, all, again, to accelerate therapy development. 
this accelerator is also focused on equitable access or global access, which means ensuring access to therapeutics once they are available by low and middle income countries. Then there's other examples. They include the COV-IG19 Plasma Alliance, which is focused on the immunoglobulin therapy, IG therapy. And then there's a large number of research alliances between industry and universities, for example. Hey, Rufus, how about the repurposing of approved drugs, as Janet mentioned? Yeah, this is a very important aspect, especially in the therapeutic development field uh, with respect to COVID-19. As uh, Bethany mentioned, the development timelines are generally very long for drug development. They're significantly shorter when you repurpose a drug that's already been approved because there is existing safety data for these drugs. They've already undergone studies and have obtained approval for a different indication. In some cases, developers can then immediately move to a phase three trial where they just test for efficacy of this previously approved drug for COVID-19 treatment. So remdesivir, Janet mentioned that, is one such example of a repurposed drug that now has received an EUA for treating COVID. And there's also ongoing studies with HIV drugs, malaria drugs, autoimmune disease drugs, and many others. So Rufus, are there specific legal issues that companies developing therapeutics should be aware of? Yeah, so many of the legal issues are very similar for most drug development efforts, but there are some that really warrant more attention in this specific context. One issue that we see quite often is our field limitations, especially with respect to repurposed drugs. Those drugs are often in-licensed for use in a specific field, so the developing partner that ultimately gets approval and commercializes the drug may have obtained a license from the owner of related IP. You know, for example, the treatment of HIV could be one such field limitation. Developers then would need to make sure that they have the rights to develop the product for treatment of COVID-19 or for uh, an indication that may not be part of their initial field or focus area. We've also seen situations where rights cover just diagnostic or prophylactic use, for example, but not necessarily therapeutic use. So that would be another field limitation that would be important to note and clear up before you engage in development efforts for therapeutic use. This is particularly important for some of the current COVID-19 drug development efforts, which may result in either a therapeutic or a vaccine, depending on what the study results support. So it's very important to analyze the rights that you have and to obtain additional rights if that's required to really ultimately go through with approval and marketing of the product you develop. During our last episode on vaccines, Rufus, you mentioned challenges associated with manufacturing capacity. Is that the case with therapies? Yes, we see the exact same issues for therapeutics. There's a lot of competition for manufacturing capacity. We see take-or-pay capacity reservation deals. We see priority access agreements. We see other agreements that try to get ahead of the crowd, if you will, with respect to access to manufacturing capacity and also then to drug distribution. Another important issue that we work in and others are focused on is equitable access. So with a potential worldwide simultaneous demand for therapeutics and also for vaccines, the question is how can we ensure global access and a fair allocation once that product, therapeutic vaccine, becomes available? So that's an important question of policy and fairness and one that many of our clients are focused on and we do quite a bit of work in that area. 
Well, thanks very much, Rufus. And thanks also to Janet and to Bethany for a great podcast today. Please make sure to subscribe to the MoFo Perspectives podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions about what you heard today or would like more information on this topic, please visit mofo.com slash podcasts. Again, that's mofo, M-O-F-O dot com slash podcasts.